Hello everyone, my name is Ryan and you're listening to The Vegan Report. If you're a vegan for the animals and you care to do more for animal rights, but you're not sure where to start, then this podcast is for you. Every week, let yourself fall in love with passionate animal rights leaders who will inspire you to find your voice, your own special contribution to the animal rights movement, however small or big it is. Today, we are going to talk about journalism and animal rights. So many stories related to animal rights just fly way below the radar. And with this podcast, I always try my best to bring up stories that deserve your attention but don't get much cover. But there are real reporters and not humble podcasters like me who have made animal rights front and center of their journalism. And our guest today is one of those people. Marina Bolotnikova is an award-winning journalist who covers factory farming and the criminalization of activists who fight it. She works as an editor for Vogue's Future Perfect section, where she covers the world's big moral and technological problems. In the past, she has written for The Guardian, The New York Times, The Intercept, and lots of other places. You will find in the description below a link to her website, where all of her great reporting is accessible. Welcome to the podcast, Marina. Thank you so much for being here. Thank you. Yeah, I'm so glad to be here. So, Marina, I first heard from you uh, uh, of you from Dr. Heath. I interviewed her on episode 12 of the podcast. Basically, she's a veterinarian who spoke up about animal abuse and got this huge backlash, and she was basically cancelled. And you wrote about her in an article called The Bitter Civil War Dividing American Veterinarians back in January. So as an icebreaker question, I was wondering if you could maybe reflect back on that article and maybe share with us some details that did not make the final cut. Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, yeah. thank you for calling out that story. That was one of the my favorite stories I worked on, and I think it's so important. Um, it was about how the, the veterinary profession and the institutions of veterinary medicine, the American Veterinary Medical Association um, is the biggest one, are basically like structurally and systematically aligned with factory farming and um, the, the interests of the meat industry. Um, it came out of like, you know, in, in early 2020, I was doing a lot of reporting on um the rise of um, so ab- about the the 2022 um, bird flu, um, which resulted in the mass extermination of um, nearly 60 million um, chickens and turkeys um, o- over the course of about a year. Um, and I, you know, I, I wrote about what was happening to these animals that had to be mass killed. Um, what you know when whenever there was a bird flu outbreak detected at a factory farm and I wrote a lot about the rise of a method called um, ventilation shutdown um, you probably um, heard about it if you know crystal and it, it's been very um, topical in the animal movement the last couple of years but ventilation shutdown basically means mass exterminating animals through heat stroke so they literally like the factory farms literally rent industrial heaters um and you know, pump in heat. Um, sometimes steam is used in the pork industry, like pump in heat to the sheds um, to like to quickly mass kill animals. Um, so they, it's you can compare it to a dog dying in a hot car. Um, it's literally death by heat stroke, and this takes hours um, for animals to to die um, from this in the poultry industry. Um, so it's you know, it's like in case it's not obvious, it's um, it's 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 basically the the most inhumane and the most like in most excruciating way to um to to call animals you know despite the um the euphemism that you sometimes hear the industry using calling this a kind of euthanasia so um i did a lot of writing and reporting on that and and through that um i you know picked up on how important the veterinary profession was in um validating and providing a you know providing a a justification and basically like a scientific and medical and moral cover for it 
Um, and, and it made me like, the more and more I learned, I was like, you know, I thought this is really like, this is really interesting. And I think would be surprising to a general audience. You know, we like veterinarian, we associate veterinarians with our cats and dogs. Um, you know, I feel like that's such an evocative, um, like, you know, association in people's minds. Um, and yet like the veterinary profession, um, is actually very closely connected to um, the, you know, the institutions that are responsible for, you know, like animal torture on a massive, mass scale. And I was just so fascinated by that. And the, like the political and intellectual history of veterinary medicine, how it, you know, how it came to be that way. Um, and so, yeah, and I decided to um, turn it into a story. I was actually, um, so I was, um, I started working at Vox last November. Before that, I had been freelancing and I pitched this story around to so, back when I was a freelancer, I pitched this story idea to so many outlets. Um, I, I had a spreadsheet, you know, tracking everywhere where I was sending a pitch. And um, I, this this pitch had gone out to literally 17 different places and just, and I just couldn't get it picked up. And I was so baffled because I think it's so interesting, so important. There's so much there. It's like, it's, you know, it, it obviously it's such a real story. Um, and, you know, I was, it was, it was discouraging. And then, you know, I started my job at Vox in my section, we write a lot about factory farming and animal rights. And so it was, you know, it was a no brainer for this veterinarian story to, to fit there. So I ended up writing it, you know, for Vox, it was published this um, past January of 2023. And it did like, you know, audience traffic wise, it did ve like very well, because, uh, you know, like, you know, the headline, the Civil War um, dividing veterinarians, I think people, people want to read about that, you know, even if they don't have a special interest in, in factory farming, I think that that, that subject is so intriguing. Um, yeah, so um, I'm, I'm really happy I did it. And I um, want to continue reporting on the veterinary profession for sure. Um, in terms of stuff that didn't make the final cut, that's a good question. It's a little bit like, since this was kind of a while ago, it can, it's a little hard to remember, but I think that I wish, like if I were doing it again, I think I would emphasize more just how, just how influential the, the American Veterinary Medical Association is in the halls of power, um, you know, in, in influencing federal and state policy on how animals are allowed to be treated. Um, you know, AVMA, if you do like public records requests, um, if you're, you know, at the USDA, you, you know, like can quickly pick up on how um, AVMA officials and also officials from other um, veterinary organizations like the American um, Association of Swine Veterinarians, that's basically pork industry veterinarians, they are in regular, you know, close contact with USDA officials who do rulemaking um, on animal, you know, animal disease and animal welfare. Um, you know, and I think that like, I, I did talk about that in the story, but I, I you know, I could have, I definitely could have gone into more depth on it um and um and and emphasized it more like how um close these connections are between politicians and the veterinary profession and um you know and the industry like the national pork board um, which is you know which is a quasi-federal organization i want to ask you about why exactly so many media outlets rejected your uh, pitch and why in general um, this the topic of animal rights is not a popular one is not very well represented in the media landscape yeah um with but that's really being rejected i was like i i was surprised by it um i i think it was probably because you know, factory farming is already a niche subject. And then when you're going like even like a layer deeper into that, into it, like, you know, like talking about messy, like intra veterinary profession politics, 
um, I think that editors might be like, what, like, what is this about? Is this super obscure? Who, who's going to care about this? Even though I thought that I was present, you know, I thought that I made it like, I thought I was clear about why it's, it's actually important. Um, and, you know, and rises to the level of, of being a big story that people will be interested in. I guess I, you know, I wasn't convincing um, to those 17 editors. Um, I, I, yeah, I think it might seem obscure and niche and, you know, editors are really busy. Um, they, um, like I'm, I'm, I'm an editor now and I'm absolutely flooded with freelance pitches. Um, I think that, you know, editors are busy. They want to be like, you know, assigning stuff that they're, you know, confident will do do well and get readers. And that's really like relevant to big, you know, national conversations. And sometimes, you know, and, and sometimes I think that they can be afraid to pick pick up stories that might be off the beaten path, even though that's exactly what you should be doing, um, you know, as an editor, like finding the big stories that, you know, no one has uncovered yet. Um, yeah, and with, you know, factory farming and animal rights in general also um, is 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 way undercovered. Um, and when I was freelancing, I was um, like fo focusing on the places that I knew we're interested in covering it, but but many more are not. And I think that, um, you know, I think it's for the same reason that society at large um, is carnist and doesn't want to think about, you know, what goes into, um, you know, what goes into making food, you know, animal derived foods. Um, yeah, and, and they also might, and a part of that as a part of that, I think they also may not realize that there's actually a lot of reader interest in this subject. You know, a lot of like at Vox, a lot of our factory farming stuff does really well. Certainly when I say really well, does well, I mean, in terms of like traffic, um, you know, it, do, it does not necessarily have, you know, draw less interest than in any, than any other beat because there is a really, there's a really dedicated niche audience, um, you know, and there are often also people from outside the niche audience who might be, you know, uh, peripherally aware of factory farming and, you know, they stumble on a story and are, are horrified and are like, this is the thing that, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm not, I'm just going to, I'm no longer eating poultry. That happened to me a lot with a, a story I did on ventilation shutdown. Um, yeah, I wish that, I, I always say this, I really wish outlets and editors understood that there's there's a lot of interest in this beat and they should all be, um, they should all have at least one reporter on it. You know, like the big, big outlets have like reporters whose entire job it is to cover like Google and Apple, <laughs> you know? Um, and so, you know, of course that we should like, uh, you know, there should be at least um, one factory farming reporter at, at, at a big newsroom. I, I agree. And that story about veterinarians, when you think about it, there's vets are everywhere, uh, even in the smallest of towns. I mean, just from that point of view, I would think that this is an interesting story. This is a relevant story for, for people because um, who never had an interaction with the vet? But Yeah, yeah, totally. But I want to um, maybe take a few step backs and ask you about your vegan journey, which is the source of this passion for factory farming, for animal rights, and for writing about all of this. So how did your vegan journey start? Mm -hmm. Yeah, um, I was, so I was pretty young uh, when it started. I think I was maybe, I think I was fifth grade, um, which would have been, which I would have been 10, maybe I was 11. Um, and, or, and it would have been in sixth, I decided I wanted to become vegetarian. Um, and that was before I even knew anything about factory farming. I, and I just, and you know, how contemporary animals agriculture works. Um, I just decided that, you know, I, I like animals and I decided kind of on a, a philosophical level that if we don't have to eat them to survive, that it's, it's wrong to do that. Um, it was only later that, I 
read books and, you know, I watched all of the factory farm documentaries. Like I watched Earthlings um, in my, probably in my early teens and, and really became exposed to the, like, um, you know, the hard uh, reality um, and, um, you know, and, and decided to go, that I wanted to be go vegan in high school. Um, yeah, I, I feel like um, most of my life has been a, you know, a, a journey of trying to, uh, you know, try, um, trying to understand why, like, why, why I'm in a, such a small minority for being, uh, you know, obsessed with this and being so passionate about it and like, you know, trying to, um, to draw other people's attention to it. Um, yeah, and it wasn't, um, you know, I, I've been working in journalism post-college for um, for over nine years, um, and it, it actually wasn't until, you know, for, for most of my career in, in this industry, I, I really didn't focus on animals or factory farming at all. I think I thought that um, it would be too traumatizing and I would just be miserable if it was if I had to think about it all day as part of my job so I avoided it for a while then um you know and then it really wasn't until like a few years ago that um I I I stumbled on like a story I really wanted to do and as a result of that I realized like obviously this has to be uh my beat and it's actually like it hasn't been as traumatizing and and terrible on a daily level as I feared. Um, you know, I, there is like horrible stuff out there that and it definitely still affects me. But um, I think that it, it 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 it's actually less less hard to um, you know to engage with it like in a creative and productive way than to um, you know than to like try to push it out of my mind or repress it. Um, and, and I've also probably become desensitized, um, in some ways. Well, I want to ask you a bit of a strange question because that's a question, um, that is always in my mind because of this podcast. Um, do you think that there is some, there are some innate qualities that make someone want to choose a vegan lifestyle? Uh, I believe that we're born with different levels of empathy, but I always hear this story again and again of people being children and being naturally attracted to uh, not eating meat, avoiding animal products, thinking about animals in compassionate terms. So I was wondering, do you think that there is something like you're destined to be a vegan or not? Um, about uh, our journeys? Yeah, um, I don't know. I mean, I think that, I think there are definitely some, some characteristics that, you know, seem like they're innate that make people amenable to, you know, to this, right? Like, I think that I was, I was and still am like not afraid of being kind of countercultural or, you know, or, um, you know, or, or, you know, or different or odd or like being even like a little like confrontational about social norms that I think are ridiculous. Um, when I was that age, you know, a preteen becoming an interested, becoming interested in lots of things in the world, you know, it wasn't just vegetarianism, but, um, lot, you know, lots of things like, I, you know, around that time, um, I remember, I think like, um, you know, same-sex marriage was a big political issue in the U.S. It was long before, um, you know, the Supreme Court declared it legal across the country. And I was like, I became really, you know, radicalized around that. I was like, it's outrageous that gay people can't get married. And I was really, um, I, I went to school in a, you know, a, a very observant, you know, traditional Jewish community. It was an Orthodox Jewish school. And so I was definitely like, I, I was the weirdo in having all of those views. And, um, you know, and it's it's just kind of how I always uh, was. Um, like, I, I empathy, you know, you, you mentioned empathy. And I think that this is something I, I've, I feel like I've been thinking about lately is I think that Um, 
I think that, yeah, I think that it's hard for, I, I feel like many, if not many people, I feel like are almost even wired to, to kind of, to, um, to like, to be unable or to even like struggle to understand ethical ideas if they are, um, you know, if they're, if they're inconsistent with with what we with what we do with you know with the rules of our society um or you know or struggle to empathize when doing that you know struggle to empathize with others when doing that would mean um like really like going against societal norms um you know i think like my you know i have i have family members who you know like older members of my family who um you know love animals on a day on a daily level they love like their cats and dogs but like struggle to understand what veganism like why what the point of veganism even is like and you know uh why someone would would even choose to to do that out of um you know an ethical obligation to animals I think they I think I think that they literally don't understand it <laughs> and that is that that's hard for me to understand you know but I think that that's actually more the norm that people like don't um I think people are wired to like not understand and just kind of um you know knee-jerk reject ethical ideas that are you know at odds that would make them like a weirdo if in society if they like you know if they really considered the implications it's it's interesting because I always hear people talk about how it is important to gain uh, people's hearts uh, for our cause and to have you know if I think about Earthling Ed I think his name is um, all he does is convince people of going vegan but for me the, the true important question is how many stay vegan and. I think there are studies out there showing that the vast majority of people abandon the vegan lifestyle after a few years. And I think that the fact that it is not normalized and that you lose um, friends' invitation at, to restaurants or barbecues and things like that, and you become kind of um, going, you go against the grain, basically, that creates a, a mental um weight and you you just can't sustain becoming vegan for social reason i think it's a big part of that and i talked with mm -hmm. some people who labeled themselves as a vegan conservatives and they mentioned how being vegan is difficult for a lot of conservatives although they accept uh, the vegan argument because it is not part of their the culture of their community so mm -hmm. do you think there should be more work on because i don't know what we should do about it um have you ever thought about this yeah i, I totally agree that i you know i think the fact that this is our this has to do with our food um you know is a is a really big part of it um you know food is so like intimate it connects with our you know memories of our our childhood and you know like our so you know social interactions that we have in in um with people every day and you know when you're like eating with your friends and and family you don't want to be like thinking about horrible stuff and making you know and 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 making your loved ones feel like you're pressuring them to think about horrible stuff or judging them you know what i mean um i think i think that's a big part of it um yeah and in terms of I, like I something that has stuck with me is um you know at like Ezra Klein and the Ezra Klein show um he and his um and his wife are vegan and he has he's talked on his show about how his his wife influenced him to become interested in veganism and animal rights and he talked about how people kind of reason we you know we we do moral reasoning socially you know if you know a lot of um if you if you if it's like you know if you know a lot of people who um who are vegan it just kind of 
um, it's almost like contagious, you know, it, it can't, it can't not um, rub off on you. And, you know, conversely, if you're like, you know, if a part of you feels like, um, you know, this, there's, there's, if a part of you is like, yeah, there's probably something very wrong with this food system, but it's so, um, you know, there's a hostility there, you know, there's a taboo on thinking, you know, thinking in that direction among everyone, you know, I think it's, um, you know, I think it's like everything is, everything is militating against, you know, like someone thinking those thoughts. Um, so yeah, like, you know, what do we do about that? Um, I'm not sure. Um, <laughs> you know, um, I wish I had, um, wouldn't it be great if, um, if I had the answers, um, Part of me doesn't like questions uh, like those because I don't know the answer and who likes a question uh, that is unanswerable. But another part of me thinks, this is why I'm doing this podcast. Maybe this is uh, something listeners can think about and maybe this is their contribution to the animal rights movement. So another of your passion is writing. And I'm thinking about maybe the listeners who want to contribute to the animal rights movement by writing, reporting on um, what is happening uh, in terms of animal exploitation. So can you share with us your uh, writing process? How did, um, how did you become passionate about writing? Uh, so mm -hmm. yeah, your, your journey around that. Yeah, um, I became, so I, I joined my college paper um, when I was a freshman um, and I, I, I really, really took to it. Um, I joined the, um, I joined, I joined the editorial section, which was it would, meaning the opinion section. Um, I did a lot of opinion writing and editing um, because I, yeah, you know, I have a lot of opinions um, and that was kind of my way into it. And it was only a little bit later that, um, uh, you know, that I got into actual, you know, actual reporting. Um, yeah, and it's, it's the only thing that I, I feel like it's the only thing that I'm capable of doing. Um, I, I tried out, I did a little bit of animal activism in college. I worked on my school's cage-free egg campaign and um, it was actually successful. It was so cool to have that victory after like a 10 month long campaign, but I did not, I, I really didn't like working on it. <laughs> I felt like I was bad at it. I didn't like bothering people and going door to door and, and feeling like I was trying to sell people something or just, you know, convince them to sign a petition. So I think I realized pretty early that that, that wasn't for me and, um, you know, and writing and like reporting in a way that felt true to, to me and, and the world I was much more comfortable with. Um, and yeah, in terms of my writing process, I feel like um, it is very chaotic. Some people, you know, some people have a process where they they really like to outline, do a lot of planning in advance about how their piece is going to be structured. And um, I don't really do that at all. I <laughs> I feel like I, you know, I'll throw down a few bullet points um, about stuff, you know, points I want to make sure I hit and then just sort of start, you know, once I, I start, just start writing um, the, you know, the, the, the piece will sort of just like flow from there and take, you know, kind of naturally take shape without me like trying to figure out what the, you know, what the structure will be um, from the top down. And, um, you know, and it, I, I think that some, some people have a process like that. Some people are much more structured. Um, and by the time I get to the end, I often, um, I, you know, I think this also is common. By the time I get to the end of the draft, I realize like, oh, this, this point that I just, um, you know, that just occurred to me in my head once I got to the conclusion of the piece should actually like be worked into the into the beginning as like my my thesis uh, that should come earlier. It's interesting because I'm thinking about um, podcasting and 
it reminds me of that uh, in a way because you cannot control the, the flow of a conversation or where it's going. It's not like, you know, I can plan with a few questions, but then I have follow-up questions and I feel like I should ask them. Um, what about posting your articles and then waiting for people's uh, feedback? How does that feel like? <laughs> um, yeah, it's... Um, so I'm, I'm, I'm active on Twitter. Um, and, um, you know, I have been quite active on Twitter. And um, yeah, I don't um, what to say about that. Like, you know, Twitter is, Twitter is being destroyed by Elon Musk. And that's really, um, on, that really sucks. Like, <laughs> that is one of the reasons I've become, I'm becoming more active on Instagram, um, and, and posting stuff that I work on there. And Twitter, Instagram is obviously a very different experience. Um, that that I'm you know because it's image based you can't re you know you can't really retweet there and so I'm I feel like I'm still figuring out Instagram um, but I I feel more at home um, on Twitter um, yeah I um you know I have I've gotten a ton out of Twitter I feel like I've I've made a lot of really authentic like life changing connections on it with other people in the in journalism and the animal rights community um, and um, yeah I I think any you know, I think any journalist will say that posting their stuff on Twitter and, and, you know, engaging people, you know, engaging with people on it is really, um, you know, it, it's, it's, it's really gratifying to be able to, you know, to have like a live conversation there, um, you know, unless you're, you know, unless you're getting your pieces is getting piled on too, and everyone like, you know, hates it and you become the, um, you know, the Twitter main subject of, of the day. Um, that actually kind of did happen to me once and it was, it was horrible. Um, but, you know, in hindsight, like, so when people say that, um, hate, you know, hate clicking on a story that, um, that you think is like terrible is actually just good for, it's actually just good for the outlet. Um, (laughs) like more, more traffic is really good for us. Um, uh, a few months ago, um, I think it was Laura Ingram um, tweeted, you know, tweeted like a retweeted a Vox story and was like, they're trying to, you know, they're trying to take your beef away. And, um, you know, and it like provoked a lot of her, her, her right wing followers. But um, that's actually good for us. Like <laughs> every reader that Laura Ingram sends to our site means more money for us to do our work. Um, and um, yeah. Well, that was my next question. You know, how do you deal with anti-vegans? Um, and they're out there and they're dedicated to just hate on whatever uh, vegan content you, you put out there. I I had to deal w- with some of them, you know, just getting my posts on Instagram, uh, getting lots of comments with pictures of meat, basically, or... Um, people quoting some obscure studies on how uh, if you're vegan, your your brain loses cognitive capacities and things like that. Uh, so how do you deal with the anti-vegans? Mm-hmm. Um, I mostly just ignore them. Like, you know, I, I this this has happened in the last couple of days um, in response to some things I've tweeted. Like it, they've attracted a lot of like, you know, carnist you know, reply guys who are, you know, who are like, oh, I, you know, now I'm, I'm going to go to Buffalo Wild Wings now. Um, just ignore those people. You know, I think I, I really, really think that is the best possible response um, to these losers because they are, you know, make them feel like a non-entity um, because, you know, they're, they're doing that to, to get a reaction. Um, yeah. And yesterday, you know, I, I don't always avoid getting pulled into that kind of stuff because it's so, it's so maddening, but generally I do. Yesterday, um, one of my, one of my like Twitter friends was responding, was getting, got into a back and forth with someone who like kept denying that, um, that, that a plant-based diet 
would require like vastly less agriculture and less resources <laughs> um, than a meat-based diet. And he kept, he kept like sending this person like, um, you know, actual facts, peer-reviewed peer literature. Like this is a basic, you know, fact about the world um, that we would devote a lot less of the planet um, to, to agriculture and monocropping um, on a, on a predominantly plant-based diet. And this person just like, you know, this person was, um, you know, a, a total idiot and just kept responding with something nonsensical. Like I, I know someone who studies this and you're wrong. It's, it's, it's actually very analogous to climate denial. And, um, you know, and I was, I, I DM'd this, DM'd the Twitter friend and was like, don't, you know, don't waste your time on these people. You will, you'll lose your mind trying to deny, you'll, you'll lose your mind trying to, um, you know, explain basic facts about reality. Um, and I, you know, and I think that the, the reply guys who are doing that often are, um, you know, they're, they're doing it because they're defensive, right? And there is like a seed of doubt in their minds, um, you know, about meat consumption and, and factory farming. Um, and, um, you know, I, I don't think it's our responsibility to waste time on them, but um, that is a good thing to, to, to keep in mind and just like, you know, let them keep getting exposed to the animal rights message, you know, in these things that they're obsessed with replying to. Um, so I don't even block, um, you know, un unless someone is doing something like truly like threatening or, or really concerning. I, I don't block anyone who, um, you know, who, you know, or unless they're I think maybe on Instagram or Facebook, it's a little different because you have like comments, you know, a more. The, the comment section is structured kind of differently and you don't want everyone, you know, you don't want it to be dominated by trolls. Um, so I, I think that's different. On Twitter, I, I rarely block anyone because I think that blocking also kind of is a provocation and it is the kind of like response they're trying to get. Oh, yeah. They're, they're proud uh, if you block them. It means uh, yeah. that's why I love the, the function of restricting accounts on Instagram um which is which is what i always do i never block those accounts i restrict them i can read their comments but no one else can and it's i, I get lots of satisfaction from that anyway um so i wonder do you then consider yourself a militant reporter do you want your articles to positively impact the fight for animal rights are you trying to change people's minds around uh, animal rights and veganism. Mm -hmm. Yeah, um, this is something that we, I think we kind of think a lot about at work because my section is, um, it's kind of mission driven, you know, Future Perfect exists because we think that there's a lot of bad stuff in the world um, that should be better. Um, so, in, and in, you know, factory farming is, is definitely one of those things um, in that sense, like, you know, definitely a huge a huge part of my work is to um you know to to draw attention to um you know to bad stuff with the hope of improving it um you know getting getting the message out um shedding light on you know on what the factory farm industry is doing that that um you know that they would rather no one talk about um, I think I see that as very, I see that as different from like, I definitely don't see myself as a, you know, a partner to any specific animal rights organization, um, you know, or, you know, or, I, I like don't, don't write stories with, um, you know, in a way that is meant to like, just mirror the narrative of any one organization or, um, you know, or, or, or like help them do the work that they're doing. I think that we like, we're, we are an important part of what we do is being independent from the actors in the movement so that we can be like critical when they think that they're doing something wrong or their strategy is not, not good. Or, um, you know, that's, that's a really important, like part of that, part of it being totally, um, totally independent from the, 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 the animal movement and um you know and and seeing and seeing activists as um sources uh 
rather than, you know, someone that you're advocating for or, Allies, um, yeah. you know, trying to, 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 um, you know, spread their preferred narrative, if that makes sense. Mm, yeah. Um, I think people talk a lot about how they want reporters or journalists to be objective. And I think they're just conflating objectivity with independence. I think what they really mean is they want independent reporters and journalists, not necessarily objective because, I mean, then you get philosophical, what is objectivity, is it even possible, and so on. Yeah, yeah, yeah I think that's a good way of putting it, that uh, I think that people conflate objectivity and independence, and those, are, those aren't the same things. And I think that, like, um, I've... I feel like I've, I've gone in my soapbox about this on like multiple podcasts now, but um, the idea of the concept of objectivity in journalism is is widely misunderstood. It doesn't mean that you should pretend to not have values, you know, or that what like Tyson is saying is as valid um, <laughs> as, um, you know, as what its critics are saying. Um, in fact, it means, it means the opposite of that, like the opposite of pretending that you don't have, um, a, a point of view. Um, and I think that I wish more, I, I wish that those nuances were better understood among the general public. Um, but I think that, um, the, I think that media has been, you know, in the last like few decades, I think media has been moving beyond a, a model of objectivity that, um, you know, hasn't really served anyone. And that's been hastened by like the rise of, of Donald Trump and, um, you know, bigger national trends. Yeah, I mean, you're so right about that. <laughs> um, so Marina, let's talk about some of your recent articles. Um, and let's start with how cars ruin wild animals' lives, um, which combines your interest for the car industry and also your passion for factory farming. Um, so can you walk us through your writing process for this article uh, from getting the idea to publishing the the article? Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. Um... I like that you picked up on my my interest in um, like transportation and urbanism. That's one of my big passions after um, animal rights. So that piece was like um, that was like a combined. It, it was so it was a Q and A with um, Ben Goldfarb, who is um, the author of. He's an environmental journalist and author of a new book called Crossings, um, which is all about how cars and roads have transformed the planet and, 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 you know, and how much they've impacted wildlife and, and wild animals ability to do the, the, you know, the basic stuff they need to do to survive. Um, and I, so I, I first became this, this subject first came on my radar in um, 20, 2020, um, I wrote a piece for Vox that was before I worked for Vox, I wrote a piece for Vox as a freelancer about um, the rise of SUVs, um, the, the, the US car fleet is, and really all over the world, cars are SUVifying, people be, are buying bigger, heavier and taller cars. And um, when I was uh, writing that story, I learned that, um, roadkill you know the issue of roadkill animals being being killed by cars is massive the scale of it is something that i was really surprised by and i think that most people would be surprised by so according to an estimate that is widely cited it's used by the federal government a lot um a million land land vertebrates meaning like you know land animals other than bugs and worms and stuff like that are like a million are killed every single day just in the u.s wow. by cars it's a crazy number um and so i read you know i read this paper in 2020 that said that cars are second only to the meat industry in the number of animals they kill like they surpass hunting um you know i was just like really stunned by that um and it, it's really stuck with me um, and now, like, it's almost like kind of hard to believe, you know, but um, 
I, for the last couple of years, I've been volunteering um, at a farm sanctuary about an hour from me. So I have to, I drive to a rural area um, pretty regularly and that has has opened my eyes to it a lot more, you know, when you're like driving in rural areas for a long time out outside of urban areas, the litter, the the highway is littered, you know, with bodies of deer and opossums, raccoons and stuff like that. Um, and that like quickly made me understand how, you know, how that could add up to a million um, a day. And 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 a lot of the a lot of animals killed by cars that we don't even see from inside our cars um, on highways. You know, they're birds and, and small animals that just aren't visible when you're, you know, driving at, at 70 miles an hour. So anyway, um, so I became really interested in that. And then I found out about this book coming out by Ben Goldfarb um, that just came out this month. Um, that's all about like basically this very subject. Um, but and not just roadkill, but how roads how 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 roads ruin and wild animals' lives in in other ways. You know that the headline on the piece was, um, you know, was was deliberate. It's not just that they mass mass kill animals, but make it really hard for them to move, to go anywhere. Um, you know, to to um, roads are so loud, and and wild animals like really use their hearing and need things to be quiet so that they can hear what's going on. It's such a, the book just really opened my eyes um, to, you know, to how, to how transformative cars are. And I, I, it's such a good read. I recommend it to everyone. Um, so I, so I just, you know, I thought that this is, this book is a total no brainer for future perfect um, because it's about uh you know, we're really fo we're really focused on things that have like the biggest scale, the biggest impacts, and you know the fact that like cars are such an overlooked um, killer of of wild an of of animals. You know, like remember the you know the estimate that they're the second biggest killer after um, the meat industry. I just thought it was a set, like no brainer for us to cover this, um, so I decided to do a Q and A with him, and he is a and I, I wrote a little like you know introduction with some stuff about the book and why you know what why we're interested in it um and Ben is such a good talker um like I, I think the trans the that Q&A reads um really really well um and I recommend it to everyone yes and also there will be a link to to this article and also to the article about the civil war um in in the description Okay, another article I really, really loved was what if AI treats humans the way we treat animals, uh, where you think deeply about new technologies and how they reveal our speciesism. That article evoked in me another question, which was, um, what is the future of the animal rights movement? Um, yeah, so, um, yeah, thank you for calling out that piece because, um, that was one I, I really loved working on too, that, you know, um, that, that one came about because, um, we, you know, AI, obviously a, a really big, um, subject in the discourse right now. Um, it was even, even more so, I feel like kind of earlier this year, several months ago, um, when there were all these, those, um, you know, statements and open letters coming out by big tech leaders suddenly saying like, oops, the technology we're building is going to kill everyone. <laughs> like, <laughs> let's be more thoughtful about what we're bringing into the world. Um, so we, so Vox was planning um, a package around, of stories around how AI is changing our society and culture. Um, and my boss um, asked me to, to write for it um, in May and um, to write specifically about the you know, AI and, and animals that, you know, the connections between those subjects, how our anxiety around um, what AI is going to do to humans is like directly parallel to an anxiety around how what, what we're doing to non-human animals. And um, and I'm really glad that he asked me to to write about it because I, I actually had like I found that I had a lot to say. Um, and that piece is 
it is it's hard to it's hard to summarize especially hard to summarize in a headline um like that you know that headline what if ai treats humans the way we treat animals it's sort of about that but not quite and so i would just like really recommend everyone i, I really hope like people read it and um and i would love your 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 feedback on it you know it, it's about how um you know that like that baseline question around how our, our you know fears of ai are, are are like so resonant with what you know what we've already done to non-human animals but then also about like the philosophy of ai and transhumanism which is the you know a movement and desire to um to to transcend our human bodies and basically merge with computers and it is about like that movement and how it reflects a um hatred of our animal selves and um all you know all the ways that that does violence to to us um and animals um yeah and um and i i think people like there is also um a bit at the end about um are you familiar with the wild animal welfare movement uh a little bit yeah so wild animal welfare um just trying to think like what is like the quickest gloss on it for people who who may not have heard of it but wild animal welfare is basically um you know it's a it's a movement sort of within effective altruism that thinks about how to you know, how, how do we make wild animals lives better when they, you know, they suffer so much from starvation and disease and, you know, predation by predators. And the most, um, the most like maximalist version of that philosophy says that we should just, we should literally get rid of carnivores, um, maybe even get rid of wild, the, you know, wild animals and nature itself um, because wild animals suffer so much. Um, I, I, um, I'm not very sympathetic to this at, and, um, and so, and I, I think a lot of readers like may not have realized because it's, it's sort of, it's a long piece and this comes pretty far into it, but, um, there is a, a, some stuff about the wild animal suffering movement, how I see it as related to all of that stuff about our bodily, bodily selves and like, um, you know, certain, certain strains of philosophy that want to remove on you know any kind of unpleasant unpleasant experience from from life um my hope is that you know I, I think the future of animal rights will has um you know will have a lot to do with the future of the climate movement whether climate activists you know whether like climate activists choose to ally with the movement against factory farming since that is such you know it's an essential part of um you know of, of mitigating climate change i think that like activists outside the u.s have had more more success with with bringing together those two movements and um i would i would love to see that emerge more in in the US um, at Vox where, um, not me, but one of my colleague who I edit is working on, um, kind of thinking about working on, on something on, on that, on that subject. Like why, you know, why aren't these, why has it been so hard for these movements that should be natural allies um, to, to work together? I think that'll be a big piece of it. Like, you know, I, I think that it's pretty, it's, it's mainstream and climate, science now that um you know that we can't sustain our like current level of beef consumption and dairy consumption i think that um you know and and i have and I'm, I'm you're starting to see like as a result of that you're starting to see discourse saying like oh we, we need to switch from beef and meat, like large animal meat to poultry because it's so much you know it's more climate friendly um and but that is an animal welfare disaster um and i hope that um you know i i, I really hope that the um like the, the animal movement is is better able to like intervene in that um you know to like help us and and poultry is also terrible for the environment um you know it's um it is it's better than beef but that like 
that bar is is very low. It's subterranean. Um, like poultry is also terrible for the environment and plant-based, you know, food is is better than all of these. So I really hope that, you know, that that animal advocates are able to 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 better influence that conversation and um you know and 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 spark like a a, a broader realization that we can't like it's it's not acceptable to just trade beef for for chicken and and that's not a choice that we have to make do you think lab meat will be a game changer because the the way i think about it is it will end factory farming as we know it to be and maybe most of the advocating work around that out there will just be unnecessary because of lab meat. So do you think that this is how things will unfold? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I'm really like really, really not sure. Um, you know, this, it's not my area of expertise. I know that, um, you know, I, I know the technological challenges are immense and I know that some people have doubts around whether it'll work at anywhere, you know, close to the scale that we need anytime soon. Um, you know, but I also know that like, um, huge technological breakthroughs happen in the history of technology and things that we saw as, you know, as, as impossible, like actually can, um, you know, can, can work and we can have a breakthrough in them. Um, you know, more quickly than expected. I don't really, yeah, I don't know how to, you know, I don't know how I reconcile like those two things. I feel like, you know, no one really knows um, what the ground truth on that is. I think we definitely need, um, you like definitely need a mass public investment in, you know, R&D for this technology, like all of the money that, that the USDA is giving to, you know, to the meat industry for, you know, fake, um, <laughs> you know, fake climate solutions. Like we just, just a couple of weeks ago, uh, Vox wrote about this totally ridiculous um, climate friendly beef uh, label that has been approved by the USDA and that is was developed with with taxpayer funding. Um, that's ridiculous. All of that money should be, you know, poured into um, plant based and um, and cellular alternatives. So yeah, I, I really don't know. I you know, I don't think it's just going to be, um, you know, a, a magic, a, you know, a silver bullet. But um, I, I certainly hope that it can can make some difference um, because it sometimes it can be hard to it can be hard to be optimistic about you know about people just changing on the just on the morals or on the environmental case. Yeah, I mean, that's... and some I should also add like some animal rights philosophers are are really against cellular meat. You you know you might mm -hmm. be familiar with this, and I like one of them. Um, you know, one of them I'm I'm very close with and know well, and and I you know I, and I totally respect. Um, you know, he, th there's an argument that some people make that, well, cellular meat doesn't cell cultivated meat doesn't really change um it just it doesn't really challenge the idea that animals are edible and so it won't bring about the end of factory farming it'll just like augment factory farming you know i i feel like that i understand the argument i think that that's that's a prediction about the future that is that like <laughs> no one is in a position to make like who's to say that that's true and i think that this is this is such a hard problem that we need to be pursuing um I, we need to be pursuing every possible solution from different angles i think it would be stupid you know to not to not pursue the cell cultivated meat approach in addition to everything else, I mean, why not do uh, everything in our power to fight this um, and have a fight on every front? I would love to uh, talk with the people behind the Lab Meet initiatives or read about them in one of your future articles. Um, I would like to know, is there any article you are particularly proud of that in your mm -hmm. eyes is worth, you know, um, people's attention more than uh, 
another? Yeah, um, you. I I like that you called out like some of the ones um, <laughs> that I that I'm proud of. Um, um, I'm just like scanning my website for you know for what I can um, bring up here. I mean, the one that um, one that I just recently um, won a National Press Club award for was this story in the Intercept about um, the about the rise of ventilation shutdown and about, um, you know, in the poultry industry at the start of the bird flu, it's about a set of really disturbing experiments at a public university um, that, you know, that were involved in um, test, you know, developing and validating the ventilation shutdown method. And there's, we have video footage directly from those experiments that are in this story. And I think that that was, it was like, it was so impactful um, to be able to have that. I saw a lot of uh, readers, you know, reacting really strongly to the footage. And there were people who were like, I'm, you know, that I'm done eating poultry um, after that. Um, yeah, and I guess, um, the other, you know, the other one thing that I've, that I would call out that we haven't talked about at all is that I, I've done a lot of, um, I have a, a, a strong interest in um, the open rescue trials that have been happening with DXC. Um, and this is a piece um, I wrote for Vox about a recent victory they had in, in March, which came after like a huge um, historic Smithfield trial last October, mm. which uh, we're coming on up on the the one year anniversary of really soon. Mm -hmm. Yes, amazing. And what project are you currently working on, and what should we be looking forward uh, forward mm -hmm. to? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, there's always like so many things in the works and so many things I would like to have in the works that don't have time that I don't have time for. Um, I um, so and, and my main my job is to be an editor now. I'm actually not supposed to be writing very much, but I kind of am anyway, as much as I can, because mm -hmm. I will always want to to do my own writing. But um, I am I have become really interested in this, you know, there's this movement um, called animal welfare and economics, which is, you know, like a set of approaches to trying to include uh, animal welfare and animal suffering in policy through cause benefit analyses and kind of like, you know, basically, you know, like basically quantifying quantifying animal suffering as a, you know, as an important cost in policymaking in the same way that we do like costs to humans. Mm -hmm. And um, I'm really intrigued by that. And I have a lot of like questions about it. And I think that there is risks. There are, there are like definite risks to it. And, um, and I've been like, you know, slowly trying to, to, to research it um, and write a story about it. Cause I think it's, um, really important and interesting yeah there are radical ideas out there like killing all of the predators in ecosystems um but they're, yeah. <laughs> they're, they're shocking but you don't believe that they will ever be applied however ideas like the one you just uh, talked about they are more nuanced and it is harder to capture what consequences they're going to make and what makes them more uh, important to 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 focus on is that they are applicable, and they might become uh, real life policy um, in a more realistic way than killing all the predators. Um, so, Marina, did I miss something from this conversation? Um, did you want to add something before we end our uh, discussion? Um, I don't think so. Um, I thank you so much for for taking an interest in my work. Um, I, I'm so like honored by that. And, um, you know, I mean, I guess one thing like I'm, I'm keeping an eye on right now, I haven't mentioned yet is there is a there is an op um, open rescue trial with DXC happening like right at this moment um, in California. Um, I may or may not write about that once it's over in October. Um, we'll see. Um, it kind of depends on whether I, you know, I see something important in it that's worth talking about or, or an angle. 
um, you're a new angle, but um, th this is basically like the third major open rescue trial after two, the two that they won within the last year. And the judge seems, um, <laughs> this seems like from it, from the animal, from the activist perspective, this is the worst judge that they've had, like mm. for sure. And I think it'll be, so I think it'll be really interesting to see what happens. Will they get, you know, acquitted again, despite all the restrictions the judge um, has has put in place? And um, yeah, there's so these trials are so interesting and exciting, and there's so much that we, you know, we can can learn about them about how the law the law can be used for animal rights. You know how juries of ordinary people are are responding to really radical, you know. Um, kinds of, of activism mm -hmm. um so yeah so I'm, i might have something on that amazing so thank you so much marina for having taken the time to uh, answer my question and thank you so much for your inspiring work i love uh reading the articles that uh you publish so yes thank you so much thank you thank you everyone for listening let me remind you that the links to Marina's articles are in the description below. Make sure to support her great work by becoming one of her readers. Subscribe to the podcast now and don't miss out on next week's episode where we are going to get political with Liz White, the leader of the Animal Protection Party of Canada. As always, please tell your friends about the show and why you love it so much. Finally, you can always follow me on Instagram at Vegan Report Podcast. Thank you again for listening. Take care and see you soon.